Hey everyone, back again. Now we're going to continue on with Glenn Coulthard's Red Skin White Masks from Chapter 2, titled For the Land, The Dene Nation's Struggle for Self-Determination. Now, if you're just jumping into this, make sure to go check out Part 1, uh, because then you'd probably be confused if uh, you haven't listened to that. Uh, so, Coulthard himself is of the Dene Nation, so this... Uh, was relevant for him for that reason, including others. Now, I think it's important to provide a little backdrop here uh, as to the Dene nation, the Dene people, their languages. So uh, this is just coming from their website, to be, which I'll include a link for for anyone who's interested. But it's a term that refers to uh, the Dene De, meaning the land of the people, also known as the Athapascan people. And they speak many languages, of course, or one language with many, many different dialects. They're regionally found, or their nation is approximately situated in the Northwest Territories in Canada. So for anyone listening who's not familiar with Canada, it is comprised of provinces and territories. The provinces are, I guess, on the bottom range of Canadian geography. If you looked at a map of Canada, and then on the top, include the territories, which include the Yukon, Nunavut, and the Northwest Territories. So this chapter is a way for him to think through Dene efforts to oppose Canadian policy uh, with regards to Indigenous people and some of the limitations of it. So in response to some Indigenous efforts to highlight the specific injustices inflicted against them, some scholars like Widowson and Howard uh, not totally relevant of who they are because it would take me forever to explain every single person who comes up. But figures like this have suggested that they are distracted by culture. These indigenous efforts, these indigenous people, activists are distracted by culture and fail to see the root of oppression being capitalism. Capitalism being the cause of all oppression. And so therefore, if capitalism is undone, then everything else will just fall into place. And if you've listened to the first episode, which I imagine if you're listening to this, you have, then you'd know that, at least in my opinion, and certainly Coulthard's opinion, that's only part of the story. There are many other things to consider when accounting for oppression and the ongoing systemic oppression of indigenous nations all across Canada and other colonial nations. Now, this chapter is a way for Coulthard to think through the Dene Nation's efforts to uh, fight for, to vie for sovereignty without just reducing their struggles to economic conditions or to economic oppression. So in the late 20th century, uh, efforts mounted by Dene people for self-determination have subsided and given way to coordination with colonial forces for some faint form of recognition. So not all efforts have been, in Coulthard's estimation, very well directed towards actual autonomy, actual self, uh, actual sovereignty. Instead, there has been some capitulation to colonial forces to receive some kind of compensation instead of really attaining uh, political, economic, cultural sovereignty. So the Dene Nation itself is not just a homogenous mass. Uh, it's not, 
you know, there are many dialects, as I've suggested, even among the language. The territory is divided up into five regions, where there's the Gwich'in, the Satu, the Deco, the Tlico, the Ataiko, Dene people. And I hope that I my pronunciation was okay. Uh, I always try to review this stuff, but it's sometimes my I can't I can't necessarily do the proper inflection of my voice or, or right um, accent the right parts. But all this to say that it is comprised of many different regions, which would probably each want their own degree of autonomy in managing their specific geographical region, which probably has its own needs and you know has its own resources, access different access to uh, to water and to other resources that would make it so that they would need some kind of control over their own area, their own people. But when, and you know, as I read something like this, it's just so apparent how far off the mark Canada is in this context, the Canadian federal government is in actually doing something right with regards to indigenous people, because all of their rhetoric is just so myopic. It often just casts indigenous people as being this homogenous mass, let alone accounting for specific regional differences among specific indigenous nations, which, of course, is something we should, um, we being settlers, should reckon with and work with indigenous people as to how to provide this sovereignty, how to make it so that these people have control over their own destinies, their own cultures, their own people. So as I mentioned earlier, the Dene people are found in the Northwest Territories in Canada, which is somewhat approximately close to Alaska. If anyone's listening from the United States and you were curious, uh, it's not right next to Alaska, but it's not totally far in that there's the Yukon, which is a, which is a fairly large province in between them, but still just geographically to give you an idea. So in the 50s and 60s, in the 1950s and 60s, there was, there was a recession in the Canadian economy. And this affected trapping, hunting practices of the Dene people, including other, uh, other indigenous communities as well, and other indigenous nations. So this often, or this forced many Dene people to enter into wage labor. So they didn't necessarily have the means or uh, the ability to just hunt fish trap in ways that they had done previously because of a recession that made it so that they couldn't just sell their goods on the market that they procured themselves, that they hunt, hunted and uh, trapped themselves. So they were forced to enter into the wage economy in order to make ends meet. Now, this is very much indicative of the way that Colt Hart characterizes primitive accumulation in the previous uh, chapter in the previous episode I did, where one of capitalism's primary functions in its early stages is to remove the ability of people to care for themselves, which is to take away their capacity to hunt for themselves, to grow food for themselves, and to offer the alternative of buying things as a way to procure, as a way to acquire goods that they will need. And so there's a transference of knowledge from individual people, from communities, onto enterprises that are able to 
do these things themselves. Now, in the case of the Dene people and other indigenous communities all across the world, it's not entirely so that people just lost their, the knowledge of how to do these things. I mean, these, these knowledges are still very much present today. But the capitalist economy is clever in that it doesn't necessarily necessitate that people lose their knowledge of these things, but it makes it so that these things, these ways of hunting and trapping and other ways of uh, rejuvenating a community to keep a community alive, make it so that these things become less and less productive at actually accomplishing the task and making it so that these acts are less and less uh, valuable on the market, which grows more and more prevalent in people's lives. So people might still know how to hunt, might still know how to trap in their traditional ways, but it's not enough to necessarily keep themselves afloat when they're surrounded by a capitalist economy that is forcing them to, uh, is, is uh, essentially reducing the value of these practices, forcing people to then adopt wage labor to make ends meet. So with the entrance of many Dene people into wage labor, the Canadian federal government, the federal government responded by establishing permanent Dene communities to facilitate their entrance into wage labor jobs and to the Canadian educational system. Now, just right off the bat, there's an issue with this because these communities are going to be set up in the eye of the federal government. That is, they aren't going to be established in accordance with traditional Dene community uh, organizational practices. They will instead be established, largely controlled, mandated by the federal government, you know, so that the people there are going to be put under the laws of the federal government. They're going to be required to, as just mentioned, attend the education that is mandatory by the federal government, which is clearly going to be alien to people who, you know, this is just a totally different way of living in the world that the Canadian government takes for granted, just assumes is superior, just assumes is uh, better or equal, so that they don't really meditate, they don't think about the possible negative consequences. And so we just saw it play out and it, you know, the negative consequences uh, were inflicted against these indigenous people and communities, of course. Now, in addition, with the establishment of these communities, it meant that there was a growing number of non-indigenous people occupying these spaces, non-Dene people, mostly settlers, occupying these spaces because they were going to occupy government buildings, they were going to be teachers, they were going to work other kinds of jobs in these communities. And so there was just a sudden uh, mixture of all these different communities. But in a setting like that, where there is an unequal balance of power or an unequal balance of power, it's not too far afield to suggest that one of them is going to overtake the other. And that's certainly what happened. People are going to be forced, uh, in this case, the Dene people are going to be forced to adopt the standards, culture of the colonizer. And another consequence was that with the growing number of people, that was, that was very sudden, instead of being more organic, where if it were just an indigenous community living there, then, you know, they would, their community would grow in accordance with the resources made available to them. But with um, European forms of transport and communication that were 
very quick, suddenly a lot of people were starting to occupy these areas more than the resources of these areas would necessarily allow. Now, this necessitated that more non-renewable resources and non-renewable energy sources had to be exploited to accommodate all of these new people in these areas. And this just completely destroys any the ecosystem, any harmony in nature in these settings, total lack of respect for the land, lack of respect for the resources, lack of respect for the animals in these areas. But it wasn't just the Dene people, the Inuit, the Métis people were also going to be affected by the presence of these non-native occupants and the means by which these non-native occupants were going to be accommodated because you know, all these resources, uh, this demand for resources meant that there was going to be exploitation, the desecration of the environment, the introduction of pipelines, industrial machinery that were going to really disturb the ecosystem there. And if anyone has been hunting, you would know that uh, big machinery is a great way to make sure that you can't hunt in that area. It will scare away the animals, uh, which is going to Make it, make it very difficult to actually uh, continue practicing your ways of hunting, your ways of trapping, if all of a sudden there are these bulldozers tearing down forests in these areas. So all of these, all of these developments encouraged many indigenous communities to start to push back against the encroachment, the federal government's encroachment on their lands. Additionally, to oppose industrial growth in these areas and also to vie for their own land claims, to take their land back. Now, one way to understand this impetus for industrial uh, expansion is, of course, in the way that I already characterized primitive accumulation, where the federal government just viewed these lands as being empty, as being just ripe for industrial expansion which is all just, of course, that's not true, but because it was true in their minds, they could just do it without any, uh, any worries about who they might hurt or the ecosystems they might disrupt. Now, in opposition to Marx's formulation about the process of anti-capitalist struggle, where for Marx, to put it really simply, if you want more, I've done a number of episodes on Marx, if you're curious and want, want more on that, but to put it really simply, workers will, through the process of gradual exploitation under the capitalist economy, as well as all of the other contradictions within capital, uh, within capitalism, like the um, extraction of resources, non-renewable resources in a finite planet, just can't, just can't keep going, the declining rate of profit, all of these things are eventually going to lead to the proletarian, which is the working class, coming to terms with the fact that this can't go on, they're being exploited, and they will take over the means of production in order to create a more equitable world in the form of communism. And please don't be rough with me. I know that is a very simple way of putting it. However, uh, Coulthard has a problem with that because that would not be the path of anti-capitalist struggle that the Dene people or perhaps other indigenous communities would pursue. It wouldn't go that way because the end goal is not just an equitable world among workers for 
um, in terms of the economy. Instead, for the Dene people, as Coulthard characterizes them, resistance would mean reclaiming the land, which might, uh, might, there might be some friction here with the Marxist understanding about private property. And it's not private property because, you know, private property is a very specific thing. But in this case, there is a reclaiming of the land as a site for the possible ethical treatment of other humans, animals, and nature. And so Coulthard calls this qualification, this, uh, this other understanding of anti-capitalist struggle, one that complies with the Dene Nation's people's uh, hopes for the future. He calls this grounded normativity. And this means, and like, I think that a fair way to understand this is to really just think of ground as in like the ground, grounded normativity referring to the ways in which there is a direct attachment between these people and the land in a way that Westerners, European people who colonize these nations, don't necessarily have. They don't have the same relationship to the land. Now for Marx, likely Marx would have seen this explanation or seen um, or heard these people's claims and said, oh, that is because you're still stuck in the past. You have these strange attachments to the land and it is the job of the capitalist economy to liberate you from these beliefs so that you can see that the real thing that matters is the economy, is economic exploitation. But that's just not how the Dene people or other indigenous communities, communities for that matter, uh, might see it. Instead, the land plays a crucial role in modes of being thought and ethics whereas for westerners land is just a means to to an end right you just exploit the land for resources for capital that you can then use to buy stuff that will uh, allow you to be fulfilled to attain a, a level of enlightenment so indigenous people Coulthard says are place-based whereas westerners are time-based and what he means by that is that for westerners the goal is to move through history in this kind of uh, imaginary form of progression, of progress, to move toward some impossible end goal, but to move nevertheless, where movement itself is the name of the game. Or as Hegel formulates it in the phenomenology of spirit, it seems like throughout the entirety of the book, the main point is the movement. There is no clear endpoint per se. Everything is wrapped up in endless movement, which is why in the course of the book, Hegel is jumping from these somewhat obscure examples throughout its entirety and always being dissatisfied with the possibility of these situations like the Lord Bondsman dynamic. He, he looks at plants, he looks at um, people's uh, engagement with, with objects in the world. Uh, he thinks about religion, and he's always dissatisfied. And it's only really apparent, I guess, around midway through, where if you're the reader, you're like, okay, maybe it's the like all of these interactions are themselves part of spirit. They all work together, even if none of them can it itself be truly seen as a microcosm of spirit or absolute spirit. Now, in contrast, indigenous peoples are place-based. There isn't necessarily this emphasis on time 
or looking to the future and endless progression, development in the Western sense. Rather, there is fulfillment attained by a reciprocal relationship with the land, with, the, with nature, with animals, with other humans, that is different from the Western view of the world. So, in 1975, the Dene and Métis Council voted to have their identity consecrated within Canada, in accordance with their political and land-based interests. But in affirming their culture, they affirmed a distinct mode of life, or in affirming their culture, they, uh, they affirmed a distinct mode of life, encompassing the economic, political, spiritual, and social values of their nations. Now, even though they voted on this, which would seem like enough, the Canadian government was severely dissatisfied and they didn't accept this. They only made, uh, they would only permit any land claims if these indigenous peoples would renounce political self-determination. So the Canadian government was like, yeah, you can have these lands, but you aren't going to be able to like govern yourselves politically. You aren't, you aren't going to be a sovereign nation. You must still exist under the auspices, under the umbrella of the Canadian political, judicial, and economic systems. So the Canadian government gave some concessions. They gave some stuff, but not nearly enough. It was just giving enough to make it seem like they cared, while not fully respecting Indigenous autonomy. So beyond the government, however, the media played a pretty integral role in drumming up hatred of Indigenous communities, among other settlers. So media outlets would jump on this to decry Dene efforts as like radical left-wing socialism just proffered up by academics, suggesting things that like it's not actually the Dene people's wishes to have this happen. They don't actually want this. This is just a few elite within the community who are trying to push for this radical left socialist agenda. And it would ultimately just create this Dene nation or Métis nation ethno-state that uh, some white academics wanted just to destroy Canada from the inside out. Now, in response to these claims, which were clearly, they were salacious pretty much. Like they didn't, there, there's nothing true about it. Or li libel. Which one is written? Libel's written, right? Slander is whatever. These <laughs> This kind of vitriol was just used to discredit the Dene nation's claims. And so the Dene would respond by saying that it's not like they just wanted to establish one single Dene nation. Instead, they were proposing that there would be the recognition of Dene autonomy, of Métis autonomy, of other indigenous communities' autonomies, and then non-native autonomy in those places too. The point was to suggest that they had different interests and it would be in their all of their interests if they were able to actually exercise their interests in accordance with their own values in their own way. Now, in response to these requests, the federal government, of course, was not going to allow this. Instead, they would just allow some more resources um, in order for the Dene people to protect their language and heritage. Again, being like purely a matter of culture, uh, not not extending this to political and economic sovereignty. So these negotiations lasted till the early 90s, so they're moving quite slowly, when Dene, the Dene were forced to concede their national self-determination movement for some land rights. 
So they were just given these concessions that ultimately uh, would just continue the, in, uh, the unequal hierarchical dimension between the colonial state and the Dene people. So Coulthard suggests that one way the government and industry were able to gain support was their co-option over the rhetoric of sustainability, which is, which is pretty interesting, where the Dene people viewed it as a way to foster a reciprocal relationship between humans and Earth, uh, that is, their, uh, their own traditional ways of hunting, of, of uh, trapping, of fishing. But industry and the Canadian government adopted the rhetoric of sustaining or sustainability in reference to industry's capacity in these areas, industry's capacities to sustain the accumulation of capital. So they were able to co-opt this term, co-opt the rhetoric of sustainability for the interest of the accumulation of capital, which is like, makes no sense, of course, but it's, it's a clever PR stunt because it takes away a very important term when considering uh, indigenous traditional hunting practices like sustainability, which is very important because then otherwise people are not going to be able to provide for themselves. So one of these things might include like not overhunting, right? Because you don't want to completely disappear the population of elk in, in a certain area or, or, or any other animal. The same with uh, other resources like berries or fruit that, are, that might be accessible. Now, additionally, because the Canadian state and the capitalist ideological apparatus that exists within it and that largely guides Canadian policy, the Dene people were forced to adopt some of that rhetoric in order to be recognized by the state. So they had to adopt the rhetoric of property not necessarily associating the land with their tradition, with their culture, which is a much more complicated and different way of understanding it than just as private property. So they had to essentially fight for private property in order to be recognized by the state as making a legitimate claim to their land, which just reveals the extent to which that the capitalist mindset has set itself in, has dug deep into... Canadian federal policy. And that puts us here into chapter three, titled Essentialism and the Gendered Politics of Aboriginal Self-Government, which I think is, I think is my favorite chapter. Uh, so let's get into it. So some critics of the politics of recognition who fear essentialism or essentialist efforts to reconcile a subaltern group identity and advocate for more liberal, democratic, anti-essentialist approach. So let me put that in other words. When indigenous communities fight for uh, their own autonomy, some people construe this as essentialism, where they say, oh, these people think that they are like a separate species to the rest of the people. They think themselves as being different. And because of this, these people are oppressive. Because what they're doing is freezing their culture according to some, um, so, some um, harmful understanding of identity as being like a biological one. So these people oppose essentialist claims 
which aren't really essentialist, but they brand it as such, by saying that the goal should not be to establish these insular separated communities that are organized according to like biology, but instead the people should be open to liberal democratic values and be opposed to essentialism in favor of perhaps a more like social constructivist approach to understand that culture is always fluid and changing. But what remains the same across all cultures should be respect of democracy, should be respect of liberal values of equality, equality across genders, across races, and so on. Not to suggest that the goal should be to separate people, like with the Dene people establishing their own nation. Now, Coulthard sees some value in opposing any effort to try to essentialize a group, to say that they just have these strict characteristics, everybody's the same there, according to their biology, their race, and so that's it. So Coulthard doesn't love that. However, he is also suspicious of these efforts to counteract such narratives with a social constructivist approach, or one that tries to suggest that people should be fighting for liberal values, democracy, equality, instead of these things, instead of any possible uh, essentialist claims. Because these other efforts, democratic, liberal ones, fight for equality, are suspiciously attached to the colonial system. One that maintains inequality despite claiming to fight for equality and democracy. So one figure that Coulthard really takes aim at is Ben Abib. So Ben Abib advocates for democracy, equality against such essentialist, you know, construed as essentialist narratives. And they frame the colonial state as a neutral mediator of these relations in order to maintain, they, they frame the colonial state as being, or Ben Abib frames the colonial state as just being uh, a neutral arbiter for democracy and equality, and is therefore not really worthy of criticism. So for Ben Abib, culture is a hindrance to equality and freedom, especially when essentialist differences are invoked. So not only just cultural differences, but to suggest that there are like these biological differences that have to be accommodated. Ben Abib sees this as oppositional to equality, freedom, democracy. So Coulthard reminds us though, that till 1985, indigenous women would lose their status as indigenous if they married a white dude. White dude, very formal. If they married a white man. By contrast, if a white woman married an indigenous man, she would gain status. She would become indigenous, whatever that community uh, was. And the state imposed this. This, this was state-mandated rules. And it's, it's just incredibly patriarchal because it just suggests that men are the determining factor in how women are going to have their status. According to um, men are going to determine what the status of indigenous women are if they are if they have indigenous status or if they do not because if a indigenous woman marries a white man she loses her status if a white woman marries an indigenous man she gains status in other words an indigenous man does not lose status for marrying a white woman 
and vice versa. Uh, a white man does not gain status for marrying an indigenous woman. So here we're starting to see that maybe the Canadian state is not such a neutral arbiter for equality, a paragon of democratic and equal rights. Instead, it has its own messed up values that it imposes on people in order to uh, to control them, in order to maintain rigid distinctions between men and women, to maintain male superiority in this context. So in the 60s and 70s, indigenous women began to really pose to mount resistance to these policies. And there were some relevant court cases that came out as a result. And I'll go through uh, three of them here. So for example, there was a case Lavelle v. Canada, Lavelle against Canada, where an Ontario judge ruled that in losing Indigenous status, Lavelle gained Canadian status. So therefore, she isn't oppressed because this judge believed Canadian status to be as good or superior than Indigenous status, which is just so messed up. I mean, like so messed up. Just I know that this is not necessarily the best way to frame this because it's wrong for us to to need to be put in a similar situation to start to understand how bad something was. But just imagine if it was you and a, a country rolled into Canada, took it over, and was doing the exact same thing, was just completely just completely desecrating your culture, your identity, your language, forcing you to adopt another one and saying, oh, well, this one's better, so get over it, essentially. Which is just, it's sad that I, I even need to frame it like that. But I think that it gets the point across. Now, in another case, there was Bedal, or Bedard, I think it's pronounced Bedal, uh, v. Canada, where she was challenging it might not it might not have been v canada actually but there was bedal who was challenging her communities her band's effort to evict her because she married a white man so she lost her status and her community her band was like you're no longer part of this community like get out of here so they evicted her and she was trying to fight against this and she lost as well because according to canadian law she did in fact lose her status now, interestingly, many indigenous communities and organizations run by men criticized these women, criticized Bedal, uh, Bedal and Lavelle for adopting feminist views that were against their indigenous values. So Coltart is uh, revealing here the extent to which indigenous communities are not immune from sexism, from patriarchal values. And he's very clear that this is a problem. This is, not, this is not something to be forgiven. However, and we'll come into this in a little bit, we're he, he nuances this to say that it's not just the same thing. Sexism is not the same thing in these communities as in other contexts, and he'll explain why in a pretty persuasive way. So in another case, there was Lovelace v. Canada, where she was denied housing in her community because she lost her status, after marrying a white man, and she had to appeal to the UN, uh, UN law that stated people have a right to exist in their community to win. Uh, she ultimately won the case and shine a light on Canada's messed up policies with regards to Indigenous people, Indigenous women mostly losing their status. 
Now, to address these instances of sexism, Canadian officials amended, this is in the early 80s, amended the Constitution Act to acknowledge equality between men and women with regards to land and treaty rights. So as to say that this was the precursor to 1985, eventually women would no longer lose their status if they married a white man um, so that they wouldn't lose their their property, they wouldn't lose their, their claim to their you know, their own status, their own community, their own traditions as an indigenous person, whichever nation uh, they belong to. And there was resistance to this by indigenous groups like Assembly of First Nations for the same reasons, because they didn't want, uh, in their minds, they didn't want these feminist values that they viewed to be Western values imposed onto them. They thought that it was totally legitimate that a woman should lose their status if she married a white man. Interestingly, though, Coltart points out that no women's organizations were invited to uh, deliberate, to, to discuss these matters. It was always men. And so he reveals that when the Canadian government deals with Indigenous communities, for the longest time, and still, I imagine this is still very much the case, they are going to engage with men because of their own sexist views. And this has been a trend. This has always been a trend in colonialism where men have been the ones that engage in discussions with colonizers. And of course, they are going to reflect their own values in colonial uh, movements that they might have any power over, leaving women by the wayside, just leaving women out of such discussions. However, the trend of excluding women continued into the 90s with the Char uh, Charlottetown Accord following the failed Meech Lake Accord that sought to amend the Constitution. And to give a little background on this, a little Canadian history lesson, um, there was an effort to amend the Constitution in order to do a number of different things. One of them was to acknowledge Quebec's distinct status within Canada, which uh, wasn't fully accepted by Quebecois people because it didn't go far enough in actually recognizing Quebec's distinct status. So it's just interesting that in Canada, among all the provinces, Quebec is an outlier and it is recognized as, as a distinct place within Canada that is uh, French. It's not the only French uh, that recognizes French province, I believe New Brunswick as well, uh, but it is the only unilingual French province. Uh, and it has its own values, its own culture, that is quite different from the rest of Canada. Now, Quebec had a lot more clout with the Canadian government in actually fighting for its own autonomy, more so than Indigenous communities. So the Constitution Act, or an amendment to the Constitution Act at the Lake Meech uh, Accord, with the Lake Meech Accord, sought to recognize Quebec's distinct status and also to allow some room to acknowledge indigenous sovereignty as well, but to a lesser extent. Like, more attention was paid to Quebec without, without a doubt. So as part of these negotiations at the Charlottetown Accord, indigenous communities could have access to what was called the Notwithstanding Clause that would allow them to abstain from any federal decisions that infringed on their right to self-governance and autonomy. So this meant that, or for indigenous women feared that this would mean that if the Canadian government tried to put forward laws 
to uh, mandate equality between men and women. Indigenous communities could say no, because that infringes upon that community's traditions, which are decidedly patriarchal in, in some cases. And the exclusion of women in these contexts have been uh, justified primarily for two reasons. That indigenous communities should have the right to choose how their communities are organized, and that the collective rights and interests shouldn't be undermined by individual rights of women. Now, figures like Ben Abib, who we mentioned earlier, jumps on this to say, like, oh, yeah, you see how messed up this is? Like, they are putting the collective in, in favor of the uh, above the individuals, and they are stripping the rights of women in these settings because of their, uh, their, their, um, their bad views about gender equality. Now, after saying all this, it certainly seems like, oh, well, sexism seems to be a problem in some indigenous communities. And Coltart is clear that, like, yeah, that's a problem, and sexism should be challenged, like, no doubt. However, you have to also acknowledge other power relations that are at play here. So after years of colonialism, centuries of colonialism, and state-sanctioned efforts to assimilate and erase indigenous people, indigenous communities struggled to support their communities, let alone entire swaths of newly reinstated women. Because after 1985, when women wouldn't lose their status and they would regain status, this presented a real problem for indigenous communities that were trying to just make ends meet because they were just being, their uh, resources were being desecrated by colonial, uh, colonial state, by industry. You know, they're struggling to make ends meet. The federal government does not supply water to these communities. They don't have the resources that they need through years of uh, colonialism. And it's going to be very hard to just accommodate all of these new people. And so there's a real material reason for a concern for these efforts. It's not just purely guided by uh, patriarchal sexism. And this is just, you know, this is just one other way to frame the issue in order to contextualize it within a broader continuum of colonial violence that contributes to such patriarchal sexism. And this same frame can be used to understand some First Nations essentialist claims about women's subordination, where Coulthard writes that it was also a conditioned response to the very real state proposal to eliminate the First Nations as such, you know, just to get rid of them, to assimilate them entirely. And again, about this, Coulthard thinks that these narratives should be criticized, but they should also be contextualized. Now, it's also worth noting that many Indigenous communities were matriarchal, but with the imposition of the colonial state, when the colonial state arrived, colonizers arrived, because they were extremely patriarchal, they would only want to engage with the men. They would only want to um, negotiate with the men, which clearly disrupted any other, um, any other possible organization in these communities where women, women might have held the reins of the community. And it's also interesting where indigenous communities, and this can really extend to other marginalized communities like black communities in the United States and Canada, where if there's any glimmer of sexism or classism or anything like that, then people who occupy a more powerful position, in this case, settlers, 
will jump on it as evidence of that culture being uh, culturally behind, in need of intervention by benevolent colonial state actors in order to liberate them from these, these views that they have, which is just a very clever way to distract from how the colonial state and the people within it are themselves patriarchal and are themselves complicit in having created, having motivated such sexist beliefs in those communities. But again, Coulthard is totally clear that that's a problem. Like, he's not apologizing for uh, this. He's not trying to justify it. He thinks that sexism is wrong in these settings, but it's just about contextualizing it and understanding the history that may have motivated it and really placing the blame where it needs to be placed. The Canadian colonial state that is continuing to strip these people of their land and their rights and their culture and their heritage, their language in favor of corporate um, and colonial interests. So Benabib's anti-essentialism essentially just translates to adopt the colonial ways of being or be criticized for being oppressive to your own people, which just keeps the colonial situation intact. So you just, you're expected to adopt colonial standards because they're assumed to be better. And if you don't, you're seen as being an oppressor to your own people. And for Coulthard, obviously it's not so cut and dry as to say that all essentialist discourse or social constructivist discourse is bad. He's saying instead that it has, they have to be contextualized. It also depends on the discursive conditions that inform such perspectives and the possible outcomes of those perspectives. So according to what interests are essentialist claims being made, if they're being made to rejuvenate lost indigenous knowledge and culture through colonialism or by colonialism, then that's, you know, there's some, certainly some value to that. If it's being used to exclude women, you know, then there's a problem there. But it's also important to see how this has come about. And yeah, that'll put us into chapter four. Uh, so I'll stop there. If there's anything I excluded or anything I got wrong, I'd really love to hear about it. I hope that I've been able to do this uh, text justice and that you're you're able to learn something from it. I, I learned a lot and it's very um, it's a very important text. If you like what I did, you can like, share, subscribe, tell your friends. You might get a kick out of it. And yeah, on that note, take care.